Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We are continuing our best of the decade series from a week ago, this being our second episode. Last week, we talked about the best ATP seasons of the 2010s. Joining me to tackle today's topic, you may know him as a former Denison men's tennis superstar or the host of our Wednesday mini break podcast with him and Matt Stachowiak. I, of course, know him affectionately as James Jill Simone lookalike Foster McDonald. Jamie, welcome, or hey, great shot, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Good to be uh, good to be back talking about the 2010s again. Last week was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, this really was a fun series, and we appreciate all the fans, the listeners who took the time to reach out to talk about what they thought of the first series. It was nice to hear, as we mentioned, there were some McEnroe, some Connor se- uh, seasons from earlier decades, the 70s, the 80s, some other interesting thoughts as well, which Nadal season, which Djokovic season you listeners would have gone with. So we really appreciate all of the feedback you gave us. And yet there's a ton to tackle, as we mentioned last week, 10 years of tennis on both the ATP and WTA side for us to get into over these next couple of months. What we're going to be talking about today, since last time we focused almost exclusively on the big four, that being Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Andy Murray, we wanted to switch it up a little bit this week. We did mention a What If podcast coming up, and that's going to be in the future. We've got, as I mentioned, a bunch of different topics we want to tackle moving over these next couple of weeks. But what we wanted to do today, almost not the inverse of the big four, but given how dominant those four guys were throughout this decade, there are obviously hundreds of other tennis players on the ATP Tour who were trying to break through over these past 10 years, who were in their physical primes throughout these past 10 years, the highlights of their careers going on simultaneously. And so often we saw so many of these players come up against these big four in the biggest stages, or in fact, if they were able to beat one of them, they weren't able to mount the hurdle of two, three, maybe even four of them in a single tournament. And that was one of the definitive things of the decade is seeing a, a grouping of players come up just short despite being immensely talented, despite accomplishing many other things throughout the rest of the tennis year outside of the Grand Slam calendar. Uh, but that's the topic we want to tackle today. Those ATP players who didn't win a Grand Slam, but maybe should have, maybe could have, uh, or maybe they shouldn't have. But these were the guys who came closest throughout the 2010s. And Jamie, before we get into specific lists, as always, I want to talk about the criteria we had uh, when coming to uh, coming up both with this topic and this list. How many guys would you say, just off the get-go, qualified for you in this grouping? And what was it, the characteristics that you were looking for in general when thinking of players? Because so many guys come up short. Obviously, there's only one winner and, you know, 40 grand slams, I think. 15 won by Rafa, or by Djokovic. 13 won by Nadal, so that's 28. Federer's won five, that's 33. Three for Wawrinka, uh, so that's 36. You know, three for Murray, 39. One for Chilich, 40. So those big three, uh, big four, excuse me, winning 36 of the 40 majors really limited opportunity so you you could really expand this list if you wanted to yeah i mean realistically i know you said a lot there but it was only a handful <laughs> of people it really was um and so obviously listeners you'll you'll hear that as we go through today but really what it is for me you know not surprisingly it's who got closest right so who did we see in the semifinals and finals of majors you know who got to that mark almost um it's also sort of a testament to who just had their name around the top of the game when it came to these majors you know who was able to make a couple deep runs make a few deep runs um ultimately what you'll see in a lot of this is even if they did make those runs as soon as they ran into a member of the big four it was it was big trouble but they almost got there so that was the number one just looking at the the, the major tournaments themselves i think a big one you got to give is did they ever get to a finals um but i think 
it's unfair to only include those people because there are some people that, that we'll talk about that got to the semis who their name was sort of up there, but then, you know, hey, maybe they were on the same side as Djokovic who beat him in straights, right? So I think that's what it really was for me. Who got to the semis in the finals of major tournaments? A couple of different things. Part one, it pains me every time I'm trying to say big four and big three comes out and I'm fighting that instinct. Ugh, it makes me so upset that I let the big three get into my head. Uh, number two, yeah, you, you talk about Grand Slam finals, semifinals, quarterfinals. Those are the big moments because you want to see, you know, if these guys, A, matched up in a different portion of a draw than those other big four players, if they were the beneficiary of an early upset, were they able to capitalize on those opportunities? Additionally, is it they were beating all of the their contemporaries and then just losing to a Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, or Murray? Were they showing that they really were the best of everyone else? How did they do? For me, you know, tennis is a 52-week season. The Masters events, that's the other stage where you're going to see all of the top seeds. Did they win any titles there? Win any final, uh, make any finals, semifinals, quarterfinals? You mentioned their record head-to-head against those guys. Did they make a World Tour final? Because to me, if you make a World Tour final, that demonstrates you were a top eight player on the year, obviously. But it, it demonstrates that, again, you were the best of everyone else. So it, when I'm trying to extrapolate, find a best chance for them to win a slam, and I'm gonna, I am gonna will highlight a couple of tournaments for each of these guys as we go through each of them. Those things were important, is demonstrating your level throughout the season is, I was a top five player that year, I just couldn't beat Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, or Murray, which is, again, this decade when you talk ATP, that's something you're always going to circle back to. But yeah, these are really the perennial bridesmaids, right, in the spirit of Nadal getting married. These are the people left at the altar because the Nadal, Murray, Djokovic, Fetters, I'll, I'll try to stop saying their names, but they were the guys winning all of the slams. And so uh, we came up with a list of uh, six guys who w- – one of the aspects of this is not only – could you have won a slam, but is your window closed now as well? Because there's obviously a whole list of players who don't have slams. You think about all the next-gen guys, it's not fair to say who can, you know, should they have won a slam when they've still got their best 10 years probably ahead of them. So those are the little things we're going to be thinking about. Any other things, Jamie, before we get into this list? Now you pretty much did it. Let's get into it. All right, well then let's talk about our candidates. And the first guy we wanted to highlight, a guy I think all of us who were fans of the ATP during the 2010s will think of when you think of the perennial bridesmaid, uh, a guy retiring this season. He meant so much to so many in the tennis world. I, of course, am talking about David Ferrer, who over the course of his career reached a career high of number three. Now, when you have, I'm not, the big four, uh, just being so, I, again, I feel bad for saying it so often. And for anyone joining us on the live video, you'll see my face scrunching up whenever the thought comes to my mind. But uh, it, we we saw David Ferrer so often be in that top five. We saw for for so long it was him. It was those big four, David Ferrer, and then everyone else. He was the one guy you can rely on. And you start looking at his uh, accomplishments over the year. Two, Two times in his career, um, from I believe it was 2012 uh, through 2014, the 2012 Australian Open, excuse me, through the 2014 French Open. So all of 2012, all of 2013, the first two slams of 2014, he made the quarterfinals or better at every slam. That's over a 10-slam period, and that's the sort of consistency we are yearning for from these next-gen guys, right? That, that's why he is the epitome of this list. Yeah, for sure. And that's why we're talking about him first, right? You know, the guys who can make deep runs over and over and over. And yeah, you look at a lot of these draws and, you know, he runs into one of the big guys and, and, and that's it, right? But he's making the deep runs. As you mentioned, if you're getting to the quarters or better at all these different slams, your name deserves to be in this conversation. Yeah. And for these stats that we're going to run through, a lot of the numbers, all of the numbers are going to be of the 2010s decade. Some of these players, because of their age, did have some experience during the 2000s, but kind of want to leave that aside as we're focusing on this decade. I want to run through David Ferrer's accomplishments. Let's start with what he did at the Grand Slam level. Uh, the big thing you mentioned, Grand Slam finals. He does have one of those on his resume, making the French Open final in 2013 before losing to Rafa Nadal. And of course, you know, the well, Rafa's dominance on the clay, well-documented, so we don't need to get into that. He's got four Grand Slam semifinals as well. I like that he's done it at three different locations. He's made two Australian Open semifinals in 2011 and 2013, a French Open semifinal as well in 2012, and then one U.S. Open semifinal in 2012. Uh, you add in eight Grand Slam quarterfinals, so again, he's making the final eight in the field. He did that three times in Australia, twice at the French Open, twice at Wimbledon, and once at the 
the U.S. Open. So it's not just David Ferrer. In an era where Rafa dominated on the clay, there were a lot of other guys who were very successful clay court players. David Ferrer is certainly a guy you'd circle as one of them, but it wasn't just on the clay. He was successful, as you mentioned, consistently at each slam regardless of the surface. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he made an impression. He wasn't a guy who you would circle and just say, oh, his only chance is at the French. No, I mean, he, he didn't, you know, operate like that. And that's that's something you respect about him. You know, regardless of the season, regardless of the surface, he's going to show up and, of course, give it give it his all. That's David Ferrer. Um, I, I think one thing to get it, to get into a little bit, interestingly, if you, if you dive into some of these deep runs, I think when we're talking about the window, well, unfortunately for Ferrer, I think the window's closed <laughs> given the <laughs> retirement. But if you're talking about when that window was, man, I mean, the 2012 through 2014 is really when he had his shot. Um, and you see his deepest runs, for example, in 2013. But ultimately, look, 2013, what, he lost in the finals of the French to Nadal, and Nadal beat him badly in straight sets. And I think it was like 3-2-3, three, 2-2-3, two, and three, two, two, and three, something. It wasn't that close. Then also in 2013, he, I think he made the Aussie semis like we talked about. That's the one where I believe he lost to Djokovic also badly, you know, in straights. So it's one of those things where he's making the runs, he's staying consistent, but ultimately he's just either gassed by the time he gets to him or those guys have just risen to a level that no one else has. And so at that point of the major, they just knock him out. I want to get back to the reasons why he didn't at the end. I, I want to just continue the case real quickly for why he could have, right? Why we considered him when we were talking about this list. Because it wasn't just at the slams where, as you mentioned, 2012, you know, quarterfinals are better. 2013, quarterfinals are better. So that speaks for itself at the slam level. But at the Masters events at well, he did win a Masters title. Now, it was, of course, one of those funky Paris titles in 2012. No Fed, no Rafa. Djokovic lost second round. Murray lost third round. But guess what? For him to beat Stan, Sanga, Lodra, and Jersey Janowitz, who, oh my god, I can't believe he made the final there. That's, that's yeah. an all-timer. That speaks to best of the rest, right? So that's step one. He also made six Masters finals over the course of his career. Now, in those finals, he lost to, in order, Nadal in straight sets, Nadal in straight sets, Murray in straight sets, Murray in three, Djokovic in straight sets, Federer in three sets. So hold on to that piece of information. But six Masters finals, eight semifinals, 14 quarterfinals. Um, yeah, th- this guy made seven World Tour Finals appearances. You talk about being, again, one of the best guys over the 52-week period qualifying for those World Tour Finals. He did it in 2007, and then he did it six straight times at the start of this decade, from 2010 all the way to 2015. So when you're making the best players of the decade, when you're looking for your top 10 players, to me, there's no doubt David Ferrer qualifies for that list. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And I think maybe you probably put more weight on the non-major part than I do because, look, really, in this conversation – Well, yeah, but in this conversation, what what are we asking? We're asking who who didn't win a major, right? And so I understand you're building the case throughout the year – well, I understand. Is, I get have, it. No, but, I know. But it, for our listeners who may not, I'm trying to say, if you want to extrapolate, you want to make the case that David Ferrer in a different era with different players, you know, you run the 2010s again, but you take out those four guys. Does he have, would he have the qualifications? Did he display the level to win a Grand Slam, to be one of the best other players? Uh, what I'm trying to say is anyone who, I don't think anyone does, but the, it's a definitive yes. That's that's what I'm trying to establish first, because if you're going to make the case that someone's, you know, you're going to play the what if game, it's nice to have qualifications first that at least match up to, okay, I'll entertain this what if. Sure, but when we talk about some of the guys who've come up with one-off titles, right, so like a Chilich or Del Pocho right before this decade, when you talk about that win, are you necessarily going to bring up all the other qualifications saying that's why? Or you're, yes. you're more likely, but you're more likely to talk about how they happen to make a deep run at one major. And so that's why I just want to, I know that that part is important and it, and it paints a picture of why they're around and why they deserve to be in the conversation. But ultimately the topic here is they didn't win the major, right? It's not necessarily that they were close just because of all the other surrounding stuff, you know? That's fair, and believe me, I'm going to have fun when we get to Del Potro, but for me, why, again, so now let's circle why David Ferrer did not win a major, and let's talk about one of the biggest questions is, A, is I know he came closest, but did he really have a window to win a slam? And that's where for David Ferrer, I hate to say it, but the answer has to be a definitive no. And when we get to Juan Martin Del Potro, I just think you have to use him as a test. I think in the biggest moments, whether it's been that he won a slam, but that he you know, went, went healthy at a Masters event at multiple uh, occasions, he's beaten 
one of those big four guys. He's got the weapons to win on that occasion. When you think of a definitive David Ferrer sequence over the course of his career, you don't think of a big weapon. You don't think of a big serve. And I'm not trying to disrespect him because it's all the little things he did well that made him such a, you know, such a fantastic player to watch. It was such a different cut of cloth from everyone else you see. Uh, you think of him just trying to wear his opponents out, just, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, as I've said repeatedly before. It's that he's going to wear you down with constantly aggressive on top of the baseline ground strokes, uh, just using his footwork as a buttress to win the match. Um, but when you come against the special talent, you have to have something transcendent. You have to be able to hit that other level that those four were. And uh, as you mentioned repeatedly, let's talk about his best stretch in 2012. As I mentioned, he's made the quarterfinals better at every slam. He lost to Djokovic in three sets at the Australian Open, four sets at the U.S. Open, lost to Nadal in three at the French, lost to Murray four at Wimbledon. In 2013, he lost to Djokovic in three sets at the Australian Open, lost to Nadal again, three sets at the French. Del Potro, three sets at Wimbledon. Gasquet, five sets at the U.S. Open. Now, that's the exception, but one of his other semifinals, the Australian Open 2011, he lost to Murray in four. The majority of those matches, and in the Masters finals he lost, you heard it as well. He just could not overcome the big four. And so when you're talking about did he have a window in this decade, given that those four players were existent, to me, unfortunately— the answer probably has to be no. I just don't think, regardless of circumstance, given that on the clay, he just couldn't over ever overcome Rafa on the other surfaces. Too many good guys who could beat him. I don't think that I don't think he left any slams on the table. I think he got the most out of his career. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what he was able to do, you know, we talk about a guy in terms of game style, not a lot of weapons, not a huge guy who's going to over, you know, just overpower somebody. And, and we know that about his game. But I don't know if I'm going to go as far as to say that he never had a window um, because it's not like he never, ever beat these guys, right? He has beaten these guys, okay? And he's done it in slams occasionally. Of course, it's not not often, but honestly, how many people can even say they've beaten any of the big four um, at majors, right? So he's one of those guys who can say that. Um, the window, very small. I, st- I think he maybe would have had a chance in that 2012 to 2014 had a good run the draw breaks right i mean look at look at a marin chilich in 2014 playing nishikori for the finals right if he's playing Djokovic, i don't think he's winning that match right like so there's things like that with just how a draw breaks you get a good win here or there you're able to slip out one of the rare big four wins that you can get and maybe you capitalize on it so i think there maybe may have been a very small window but a lot harder to do, especially when you take into consideration his game style, right? He's not a Delpo who can just whack someone off the court. He's not a 2015 Stan Wawrinka who can just crush the ball against Djokovic in the French Open final, right? So there are things that definitely held him back, but I think, I I don't know, it's not like a totally hopeless scenario looking retroactively. I do think there was a small window for him, and he just couldn't quite get there. We have to move on, but you talk about that record against the Big Four. 0-17 against Federer, never played at a slam. 6-26 against Rafa, 2-5 at the slams. Both of his wins coming on hard courts in his deepest runs. He beat Rafa at the U.S. Open, I want to say quarterfinals in 07, and the quarterfinals of the Australian Open 2011 against Novak Djokovic, 5-16, but 0-5 at the slams against Andy Murray, 6-14, 1-4 at the slams. His one win coming when he makes a deep run at the French, beating Andy in the 2012. Of French quarterfinals. But yeah, he just couldn't beat those guys. And ultimately, that's what you had to do. You had to beat multiple of them in the biggest stages. And there's a reason so few other people won slams because it takes such a high level of tennis to do it. And I think we're just going to have to disagree here. I, I don't think Ferrer ever reached that level. I think it's fair to say you do think he did. Um, so with that in mind, any final thoughts on Ferrer? Are you ready to move on? Nah, we gave him the justice he deserves. Yeah, At least I did. Well, I don't know if you did. There's a <laughs> is David Ferrer a Hall of Famer discussion, and I want to. That's do, a whole other. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. that's ATP Hall of Famers of the decade, and I promise listeners that's later in the series as well. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of '90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all. Levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Let's yeah. get to our next guy. To me, I think this is going to be the easiest discussion, and this may 
offend some listeners because Gael Monfils, the next guy we're going to talk about, there's no doubt if you're making a list of most entertaining players on the decade, he's right at or is the top guy. I mean, the athleticism, the electric uh, electricity with which he plays, that he can produce winners on the run at a whim. That you know the pace on his forehand when he wants to line it up and smack down the line. Good luck getting those back. The jumping overheads, all the different things, the way he uh, engages the crowd. Such an a- appealing player, such a fan favorite over the decade. But uh, and such a, ca- a captivating talent. No one can deny the level of talent Gael Monfils possesses. But when we were talking about the guys to discuss on this list, we wanted to put him on and. Let's go through his qualifications real quick. No Grand Slam finals from him either this decade nor in the 2000s. He made one Grand Slam semifinal as well as an additional one in 2008, but won this decade. It was at the U.S. Open in 2016. Six Grand Slam quarterfinals plus one in 2009, so seven total in his career. One at the Aussie Open, two at the French Open, three at the U.S. Open, none at Wimbledon, which is something I do hold against him. But uh, And you look at, let's go through his Masters titles real quick because no Masters titles, uh, which again, Ferrer had. So in the scenario, he with a couple of losses still, but he was able to emerge as the best of the rest. That never happened for Monfils, but he did make two Masters finals, uh, losing to Soderling in Paris in 2010 and Nadal in three sets in Monte Carlo 2016. He's got three Masters semifinals, seven Masters quarterfinals as well. Um, Jamie, those, so with those qualifications in mind, I still don't see a definitive stretch where Gael Monfils, uh, again, there are times when he's the best player in the world, but there's not often you know, a five-month stretch where he is a top-five player in the yeah. world. Yeah, and, so, and this is why you know, I was sort of bringing up this argument a little bit in the Ferrer case is because <laughs> I think Monfils is one of those guys that when you talk about him, no, he didn't sustain it over the 52 weeks, but if this guy gets hot, it was realistic that he maybe could have pulled off one of these. I think really the example is 2016 U.S. Open. Um, he did have a chance. He took a set off of Djokovic in that semifinal. Had he gotten through that, he's playing a guy who's not a member of the Big Four. That's not a bad chance, honestly, if you're Gael Monfils. And so that's this is one of the examples where just because he's not you know in and out of Masters semifinals and finals throughout the entire year, still could make a deep run. I mean, look, he made it to the... Just recently, he made it to the semis of the U.S. Open, took a set off Djokovic, could have had a chance against Favrik. I don't know. That Those are the sort of stories that I think deserve to be in this conversation, even though he might not have been the most sustained presence at the very, very top. In an individual match, there's no doubt Gael Monfils can display that sort of level of play where you're like, if this guy could do this for two weeks in a row, he'll win every match he plays. And uh, there's no doubt he's had those moments. You know, you look at his career against the Big Four, 4-10 four and 10 against Roger, that's not terrible. 2-14 uh, and 14 against Rafa, 0-15 oh against Djokovic, that's not very good. Uh, two, you know, 2-4 and four against Andy Murray, small sample size, but fine. They're 1-1 one one at the slams, though Gael beat him in the 2006 French Open first round, so take with that while ago. But excluding that, this decade, he is 0-14 against the Big Four at the Slams. That he only has one Grand Slam semifinal as well speaks to he didn't get that many chances to even, you know, he couldn't beat the rest of the muck. And that's not to be disrespectful to all the players. I'm not talking the Simones and Gasquets and Paul and Rimetus and Benitos of the world muck. I'm saying that Gael Monfils couldn't get through that, that he couldn't put together two week stretches. And at the Masters, it's 10 day events. And I think it was seen at the Masters as well, where, you know, for five days, he's amazing. But day six, that sort of athleticism, the body can only take so much. And so much of his career, there have been little ailments and injuries that have plagued him. And of course that's something you factor in but to win a slam you need to show sustained excellence and I think the one blemish against Gael Monfils is he's never been able to sustain that well at the start of this year he was actually really good for the first three months that was a really sustained period of exceptional tennis top 10 form but he never to me had a three-month period of top five form and you have to do that before you even can show me two weeks of number one form yeah, I don't know. I think I think your criteria for being able to win a major is a little jaded by what we've seen from the big four. Of course, they've been it has dominant to be, because right? the, well, yeah, but that's that's sort of the rule for those guys, not for an exception like Gael Monfils. Because when you're thinking about the big four, of course, yeah, they're showing they can sustain the excellence because they're just that much better. They're a notch above, and so of course that's going to translate when it comes to the majors because once again they're just that good. But I think there are cases like Gael where 
just because he can't sustain that doesn't mean he can't get hot for a couple weeks. Right. And so you, you say it that, yeah, we saw it in masters, of course, where, you know, it, it just sort of tapered off. He had a bad match and that's that. Right. So, no, he did not have the consistency of the big four. I don't think anybody's arguing that. But is it fair to say that he never could have made a streaky run and gotten to the end? I don't know. I mean, he's been around a long time. And like I said, 2016, that was an opening. Like whether you like to say it or not, it was. So when I, one of the criteria I have on our outline, best chance for a slam, we were going through and just, you know, we wanted to highlight certain times. That 2016 season was probably his best opportunity because you look at it, that was a year I highlighted Andy Murray. That was his best season. And I think others would argue that Andy Murray, his best season is the most attackable season for other players. Uh, You look at the things Monfils did in that season, not only Australian Open and U.S. Open quarterfinals and semis respectively but at the Masters he made the Canada semifinals at Indian Wells in Miami at the beginning of the year he rallied off of that Australian Open quarterfinal to make the quarterfinals at both of those events now at the Australian Open he benefited from both Nadal and Anderson upsets beat Sagita, Mahout, Robert and Kuznetsov and then that match against Rayona she lost in four sets you're right he's probably really kicking himself because he could have gotten another semifinal appearance there but I I I, I don't feel bad saying I, I'm strongly on that. I don't think Monfils left any slams on the table in that I don't know if he where his mind and body, they were never perfectly aligned to where he was healthy and locked in at the same time. Yeah, and, and maybe this is getting into semantics here. I think it's fair to say he didn't leave one on the table because I don't think there was ever one, like you said, where everything was aligned and he was like, yeah, this is my time to shine. That being said, though, there probably was an opportunity for him to just get hot because he's that type of player. If he gets hot and, and sustains it even for you know a few matches, gets through some ones he's supposed to win, get a couple upsets, right? Like there's no telling what the guy can do when he gets on a court. And especially if you're facing a non-big four in the finals like he would have in 2016 U.S. Open. By the way, correct me if I'm wrong, 2016 U.S. Open when he was playing Djokovic, was that the really weird one where he like kind of tanked for that set and was like doing all the weird stuff to get to play the mind games? Was that that I match? Th- right, and then they kept playing and then he yeah. kind of woke up. I think yeah. so. I think that was that one. But what's weird is like the tanking sort of thing worked. Like he, he had, I don't know, obviously Djokovic, the better player in that one and came through, but... That's one where if Monfils gets hot, it's a potential one. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's fair. Well, then, one guy I think definitely left a major or two on the table, and it was one of my favorite case studies as I was going through this list of guys that we were going to talk about. Tomas Burdich, the next guy what we want to discuss, uh, a guy who, you know, uh, every time it was the quarterfinals, it felt like from like 2013 to 2016, you know, you were going yeah. to see Tomas Burdich against one of the big four players. You look for Tomas, you know, career high of number four in terms of the things he accomplished. He did make a Grand Slam final at Wimbledon in 2010, six semifinals to his name, two at the Aussie Open, one at the French, two at Wimbledon, one at the U.S. Open. So like Ferrer, consistency across surfaces. Nine Grand Slam quarterfinals, big slam runs for him. He made quarterfinals or better at six straight, seven out of eight Australian Opens, 2011 to 2016 and 2018. And from 2013 Wimbledon to 2016 Wimbledon, so 13 slams total. He did fourth round or better at all but one of them. He made a slam semifinal in five out of six seasons, 2012 and 2014 through 20. 17. That's sustained excellence. That to me, again, much like Ferrer, and maybe I am overbalancing it. And listeners who are watching or listening on the pod, please let us know if you disagree with that. You think I am overbalancing this, but I think Tomas Burdich, we didn't talk about this with Monfils, but I think the defining uh, image of Monfils will always be him scrambling around and then the forehand at will just down the line Mach 12 or him hitting one of those incredible jumping slams that he does or just scrambling. You know, there are so many different things, but not one defining thing for Gael Monfils. Tomas Burge suffers from that a little bit as well in that when you think of Tomas Burge, you're like, this guy was a 6'6 machine, huge serve. Uh, You know, if you gave him a short ball, if you gave him a ball to attack, he was going big with his ground strokes because he was able to hit the ball so hard. Uh, Now, a little stiff. You know, not the most dynamic athlete, but just a rock solid, knew exactly how he wanted to execute sort of player. 
And he was the sort of guy who, because he had you know, 13 slams in a row where he was making fourth rounder better, he was knocking on the door so frequently that it really felt like if things broke right, he was going to be the guy who benefited you know, in that 2011 to 2014 range to got a slam that wasn't a big four member. Yeah, and the thing is, too, when you think about Burdich, think about his mindset. You know, you can say what you will, obviously, a guy of confidence and says his remarks on the court. We've seen some clips, of course. But <laughs> look, Burdich, of course, in his head, he's thinking, okay, one of these is going to be mine. One of these has got to be mine. Like the one that we cite where he goes the deepest, of course, that final at Wimbledon. Do you remember who he beat in that? He beat Fed in the quarters. Then he beat Djokovic and in that semis. Was, fun fact then, on that yeah. Fed. Do you, that when he beat Fed, because that was when Fed was losing to Nadal at Wimbledon as well, I think the year before. And it was, you know, that was, oh no, is this the end of Federer in 2010? Let's think about that. When British beat Fed, it was supposed to be the end of Federer. And look where we are 10 years later. Sorry. Those are the little tidbits that That's, are hilarious. From it's very true. But, yeah, but know, go on. Yeah, but Fed. So Fed's the number one because, you know, it's Wimbledon and it's Fed, right? <laughs> Burdich beats him in four, then goes to the semis, beats Djokovic in three, then goes and you're thinking, okay, I mean, wow. Like, first of all, this guy's draw, that's a bummer. You'd have to beat three big four guys and the big three of the four guys back to back to back to win this. But then you're thinking he can actually do it. He took out Fed on his home soil. You know, we're calling Wimbledon Fed's home soil, let's be honest. And then Djokovic in the semis. And then you get to Nadal and you're like, this guy can do it loses in streets, right? So <laughs> I, I, that's that's sort of a bummer for Burdish, but absolutely, that's his golden opportunity. Well, that's the one he definitely kicks himself about the most, and I want to talk about those other moments for him, but just took again, sustained excellence. Uh, no Masters titles this decade, but he won, of course, a Paris Masters title in 2005. If you're not a member of the Big Four and you have a Masters title, it was likely in <laughs> Paris. It's <in> Paris. <laughs> yeah, if, if you don't realize that by now, that's the place where, uh, yeah, that's where you go get those. Um, but three Masters finals to his credit, Miami 2010, where he beat Federer, Verdasco, Soderling before losing to Roddick. Uh, that's hilarious, and I'm sure he kicks himself over that. <laughs> Madrid tough. 2012, he beat Monfils, Verdasco, Delpo before losing to Fed in three, so comes close in that stage. Again, two out of three is not three out of five, so it's interesting to see that they did go three, six, seven, five, seven, five. Monte Carlo, he loses, or he beats Bautista, Goose, Raonic, and Monfils again before losing to Djokovic in three. Twelve Masters semifinals, even more impressive, 22 Masters quarterfinals uh, throughout the decade as well. I mean, again, he was always around. He was like Ferrer. I think that's half the equation is, A, can you be the best of the muck? And he was that that for me check mark. He was always a guy who was around there. That, uh, but B now we get to why he didn't win a slam. And you know you look at his record against the big four: six and twenty against Federer, but two and eight at the slams. Four and twenty against Nadal, one and four at the slams. Three and twenty-five against Djokovic. Ouch. Uh, Two and four at the slams, but one of them was that 27 Wimbledon quarterfinal where Djokovic clearly wasn't right. Six and 11 against Murray, a little better, but one and three at the slams. Look, when he was able to beat one of those guys, for instance, he beat Federer in the Wimbledon 2010 quarterfinals, beat Djokovic there as well. He made a final there. He was able to beat Andy Murray, the 2010 French Open round of 16. I believe he made a semifinal there. He beats Rafa at the 2015 Australian Open quarterfinal, obviously makes a semifinal there. He was a guy who could beat one, but he could never beat two or even three. And, you know, to ask someone to do that was the most impossible task of the decade, of course. So I'm not holding that against him. But to me, he may be the most clear-cut guy of, man, if there wasn't a big four, I am confident Tomas Burdich would have two, three, four, maybe even five slams. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say. And look, it is so difficult to beat those guys back to back to back. Of course, Wimbledon, he beat two of them, but just couldn't get it done with the third. And I will say one thing that's pretty impressive with Burdich is, and maybe you don't think about it until you really dive deep into this, is those records at slams are, are better than the ones overall, right? So he showed up in the big mm-hmm. moments and he could beat those guys, right? Um, of course, the sample size is smaller and, and you get to draw a little less out of it. But at the same time, it, it, it speaks wonders for Burdich that he was able to show up in the big, big time moments on the big stages. And a lot of it, that that's his confidence, right? He knew that he deserved to be there with his talent, with his game. He was like, I deserve to be on this court. And you know, there were so many times, even if he ended up losing it, he's like, I should have won that match. And Sometimes he had a right to be feeling that way because you're absolutely right. If it weren't for these guys too, he would have won a few for sure. I think that's more than fair. The, the two 
Outside of that Wimbledon final, the two I would circle. The 2015 Australian Open where he made that semifinals, he beats Meltzer, Troisky. Meltzer at the time, by the way, that was an impressive win. Uh, Troisky, Tomic, Nadal, then lost to Murray in four sets. Now throughout the course of that season, he made quarterfinals and semifinals at Indian Wells in Miami, quarterfinals of Cincy, Shanghai, and Paris. He was one of the top guys on a hard court that year, and I'm sure he's kicking himself for losing that match to Murray. But then... I know 2017 Federer, we said, was one of the best seasons of the decade, but for Burdich, who was kind of on a last stand at that point, clearly the end for him physically uh, was right around the corner, and he started to deal with injuries pretty soon after that. But he beats Chardy, Harrison, Ferrer, team, gets the Djokovic retirement, finds himself in the Wimbledon semifinals against, what was it, a 36-year-old Roger Federer, and he would have, you know, had he won that, he would have had a shot at the winner of Chilich and Query, which was an out-of-nowhere semifinal, and you just have to remember, in the context of 2017, it was like, okay, there's no Djokovic really this season, there's no Murray really this season, and somehow Federer and Nadal keep winning, it felt like that was the one he could have and maybe should have squeezed out. And, you know, he loses to Fed in straight sets, but it was 7-6-7-6-6-4. And, of course, I was, you know, I watched some highlights of that match in preparation for this. That was the one to me. I think 2017 Wimbledon will be the one he's like, I know I made the final in 2010, but that was a prime Rafa. But 2017, I should have had. Yeah, and it's one, too, where, you know, before that, that's not one where people were calling Burdich's name, right? He It wasn't like the 2010 where he had been consistently right there. This was a very different scenario. And then it's like, who is in this? Query's in the semis. Burdich is in the semi, right? I mean, obviously, one of those is different than the other, given Burdich's um, history, especially you know, of the last seven years prior to that. But absolutely, that's a chance for him. And, you know, he's got to be thinking, looking at the other side of the draw, thinking, wow, I can do this. And then you've got a 2017 Fed who shows up and does what he does at Wimbledon. So this is what it is. He had his chances. That's definitely one to circle for sure. Yeah. And I, we didn't address this for Monfils. You would say the Monfils slam window open or closed at this point? Ooh, I, at this point, I feel like you got to say it's it's closed. I mean, I feel oh, like you got to say, gonna it's say oh, I thought you were going to say very tempted. Open. I'm very tempted because Monfils is such a guy that can show up whenever, but I don't know. Now at this point, he's getting injured more and more. Seating-wise, it would just be so many Seating guys. Seating-wise, it would be – yeah. And now, uh, now that we're to the point where the next-gen guys on paper are expected to have an edge over him in a lot of cases, at least the top ones, like – he, his draws are just getting harder and harder the the older and older he gets, and the guys at the top are still sustaining at the big three, four now. Murray's back, like, yeah, it, it's not looking good for Monfils. It's unfortunate. Uh, I I would love we, to say he's got a huge window, but that's my way of saying. So I, I agree with you. I think it's closed. I, Burdich definitely closed, right? And I would say he was a guy who. Even with the big four, I think still could have won a slam this decade. He's one I think really kicking himself because mm-hmm. he was that good. But another guy who I got in through a loophole of the qualifications for this, who did not win a slam this decade, does have a slam to his name, but a guy I think could and has beaten those biggest guys on the biggest stages, a guy who, in my opinion, short of injury, would almost certainly have taken another slam this decade. Maybe the most interesting case we're going to talk about on this list is Juan Martin Del Potro, who, of course, got his one Grand Slam at the 2009 U.S. Open. Now, where I want to start a stat that it speaks to how tortured he has been with different injuries. He played only 23 of the 40 possible slams of this decade. And considering he won the last slam of the previous decade, you know, he was one guy everyone had circled given how that run went to win that slam. Um, and, you know, injuries is half of the equation. And we don't even have to spend that much time because I think everyone who is listening to this podcast and has followed tennis is well aware of what Del Potro has struggled with. But... Let's make the case of why he could have one more in this decade and why he maybe came closest to winning one of anyone else in this group. He has the one Grand Slam final, which we saw last year, to 2018 U.S. Open, where he lost to Djokovic. Three semifinals to his name, uh, one from the previous decade as well, but 2018 French Open, 2013 Wimbledon, 2017 U.S. Open. Five Grand Slam quarterfinals this decade as well. I mean, in terms of when he played the U.S. Open three years in a row, 2016 to 2018, he went quarterfinal, semifinal, final, 
final in three consecutive appearances, which again, so rare for us to see. I mean, his longest streaks of slams in this decade, he played nine straight from the 2011 Australian Open through the 2013 Australian Open and seven straight from the 2017 French and the 2018 US Open. You talk about efficiency. When this guy was at the slams, you always circled where he was in the draw. Yeah, absolutely. So dangerous for a number of reasons. I think the one we start with is the game style, right? He's one of the few guys, there's a very, very short list of people who on a given day and more than just once or twice can hit one of the big guys off the court. I mean, hit them off a court. Can His I frame this a little sure. differently, if you don't mind, for our listeners? I would say I agree with you. That's that's part of the equation. But the he's the only guy we're going to talk about today who when he played his best tennis, it didn't matter who his opponent is, Juan Martin Del Potro is going to win the match. Yeah, I don't know if we can go that ex- exaggerated, but yes, for the most part, the the, the match is on his racket. That's the beauty <laughs> that, of that's his perfect, game. Perfect. And so that's that's one of the things that makes him who he is, right? He gets a hold of that forehand and you're toast, right? Even if you are a Djokovic, you're not catching up to the 100 mile an hour one down the line. And even if you somehow get it back, he's hitting another one cross court. Like, so this guy has the ability to just hit rockets from anywhere in the court. And it's funny too, we forget about it. His backhand was not bad at all, man. I know it gets it gets drowned by the injuries, it's all the wrist stuff. How it's good so he tough. Was. But yeah, you you go back and there's a lot of things you can say if you go back. He was and an watch athlete that. too. When he you go back, like what a... was he? Was he was he 20 in that 09 final when he won? Yeah, it? I think so. And yeah. he was 20 when he won the U.S. Open, which okay, good for him. Um, <laughs> makes me feel like a failure. It's fine. Uh, but a few things I take away from that match. First of all. That dude gets fired up, and I love it. That's another part of it. He is not afraid of the stage. He loves the stage. That's why he was able to win that. Of course, the game style. You look at some of the shots that he was able to come up with, forehand and backhand. This dude is ripping winners. I mean, he's looking. He's making Fed look very uncomfortable. Three, this one's a little anti-Del Potro, but if you watch that, Federer probably should have won that match. He had his chances. Let's be real here. And I'm glad I'm glad Del Potro has that title. I think he deserves it, um, especially with all the injuries that have come later. I think he deserves to have a title. But when you think about Del Potro, so interesting, such a fan favorite, right? And so we're always cheering for him and wishing he had another. But it's devastating to see his backhand get taken apart. But look, just a year ago, this guy had a shot, right? He was in the finals and playing well, ultimately ran into a really, really good Djokovic. But even without that backhand, he was still in a final of the U.S. Open. So that's got to speak for something. I think two things when you look at Juan Martin Del Potro. One, I didn't mention this in terms of his qualifications, but you also look at he did how at the two Olympic events this decade. 2012 wins a bronze medal, beating Djokovic in that bronze medal match. 2016, that miraculous run to the final where he knocked off Djokovic first round and Nadal in the semifinals. So he beat those guys at the biggest stages. Obviously, he beat Roger Federer in a Grand Slam final. And how many guys not named uh, Murray, Nadal, or Djokovic can say that? I don't know if any. Um, So that speaks to just the level he shows. He also has a defining sequence, right? You talked about it. That big serve, he's going to run around until he gets it, but he's going to hit the forehand big, and he's going to go down the line inside in eventually, and good luck tracking that down when you can. And it it takes a special talent to do that, and that's why the only guys who were really his contemporaries were those big four guys. I mean, he has that Indian Wells title from 2018 at the Masters level where he beat Federer in the final. Uh, Two Masters finals for him this decade, Indian Wells 2013, where he beat Murray and Djokovic, but had to do the you know impossible to pull off three, beat three of the top guys, and loses in three to Nadal in the final in Shanghai 2013. He beats Almagro Nadal before losing to Novak Djokovic seven six in the final, uh, seven six Masters semifinals, six Masters quarterfinals. Which considering how few events he played, you got to keep in mind the efficiency. I mean, look. 7 and 18 against Roger at the Slams, 2 and 5 uh, overall 2 and 5 at the Slams, 6 and 11 against Nadal, that's not bad, 2 and 4 at the Slams, 4 and 16 against Djokovic, uh that 0 and 5 at the Slams, 3 and 7 against Murray, 0 and 2 at the Slams. Four appearances at the World Tour finals in his career, uh to this decade 2012-2013. This is the guy when you, we we talked about this. The upside was always there. And so it was an issue of health for him, not level. Yeah, and that's that's the unfortunate part, right? Of course, we're going to talk the, and, and talk about the what if here, uh, which is just unfortunate anytime you have a talent like this. But I mean, that being said, ending on a slightly hopeful note, right? That 2018 was not long ago, and 
like I said, even though the backhand is severely hindered, he's still making deep runs. Like you said, he's got the master title. He makes the U.S. Open final, so he's still around. Um, and so I don't, I don't think his window's closed to get to that chapter. That's the one he's kicking himself about for sure because he had beaten Chorich Isner and then got the Nadal retirement, right? So he got that extra mm-hmm. rest before Djokovic in that 2018 U.S. Open final so to lose in straight sets. I think that was our live show. And, it was. Uh, you know, I know I was suffering from back pain and way too drunk <laughs> off of our beautiful, uh, you know, it was a beautiful set. It was a beautiful time. Um, but. Yeah, that one. I think the 2017 U.S. Open, when he beat Team in five and then beat Federer, he played Nadal in the semifinal and won that first set. And I remember his level was just incredible. But you could also see he was about to break down, like just physically. The the previous two rounds were so stressful or so strenuous on his body. And so he ran out of steam. But had he had anything left in the tank, I mean, he would have had a Kevin Anderson final, right? So that's another one that was on the table. But let me say this, though. How many times have we seen Del Potro in a match where he is hunched over looking like he can't walk three steps and then he comes out and just bombs a forehand I, and wins I, the match i'm like what are you saying you're acting like you can't walk well, and it's that's just part of the problem it's awesome it's like watching greg odin in basketball it's just painful you're just like this guy looks like it hurts like i i, I don't even know what else to say and it's like 20 thir- 2013 wimbledon semifinal. it's just that i remember exactly where i was when he lost that five set match to djokovic six three in the fifth i was at bt tennis club watching my little brother at a tournament they had the tennis on in the background i was like oh it's a freaking fifth set like it's this is unbelievable um it speaks to the quality of tennis del potro played throughout oh, yeah. this decade and i think he is one of the guys who probably left the most slams on the table due to circumstances out of his control yeah that's that's the part of that's the stipulation i would put in there just when, when it comes to the injury for part you know this isn't about his ability to fight in the majors it's not about his talent right it, it is about the injuries the amount of surgeries he's had to go through um even the freak injuries where he just messed up his knee again right and he's now he's coming back he's hitting he's hitting again i think so um i think he'll be back soon and i think he does have the potential to make another run but window open or closed real quick windows open. On that. windows open uh, windows open. I, I refi- think so. I, I'm not closing any window on Juan Martín Del Potro. He's not. He's really not that old. He's what thirty, yeah, something like that. But still, I just wouldn't do that to him. I just like. Wait, I'm not going to suffocate the six six giant, the most you know humble giant you, you could ever awesome. meet. Yeah, fan favorite for sure. But a Absolutely. guy who interesting. Where you're going to say on window open, window closed here? I think the answer, unfortunately, is now going to be fairly obvious. But our last guy we want to talk about in terms of window open or closed, uh, Joe Wilfred Songa who started, you know, 2008 before this decade with that Grand Slam final against Novak Djokovic. Now, didn't make any finals this decade, but has five Grand Slam semifinals to his name, one at the Australian Open, two at the French, two at Wimbledon, so across all three surfaces, eight quarterfinals across the four slams. Uh, His best runs at each of the slams were all pretty impressive in the Australian Open from 08 to 2010, finals, quarterfinals, semifinals, French Open 12 to 15, quarterfinals, semifinals, fourth round semifinals uh, Wimbledon 10 to 12 quarter semi semis US Open 14 to 16 fourth quarterfinal quarterfinal so what that tells me is a yeah at a, a bunch of different times uh, he was a threat to make a run into the deep eight but unfortunately it was never over a sustained period right it wasn't like 2010 2011 he was a top 10 guy it was oh for part of 2010 he was a top five guy for part of 2016 he was a top 10 guy for part of this season he was that and so this gets back to upside versus sustained excellence and I hate to say it but I probably lean more on the this is a guy with upside but never sustained it long enough to reach that grand slam heights yep no I I gotta agree with you on this one um Look, you think about Sangha, there's so many things you could say, right? I mean, just a dynamic athlete. Um, Of course, he can just hit the crap out of the ball. Granted, I'm not going to give only him the the credit on that. He's using an arrow pro drive. Thing's an absolute trampoline. So (laughs) let's be real here. Let's – we yeah. We don't need to get into the racket discussion, but that that racket's a trampoline, and he was just slapping the ball. So it's interesting because when you think about his weapons, yes, when he brings it, he has the big guns. He can bomb his serve. He can rip ground strokes. He can try and ultimately fail a one-hander on the run. Um, That's what you think of when you think of Joe Willie's game, right? But it's the big forehands and the big serves. Ultimately, though, there's, there's a very big categorical, categorical difference between him and like a Del Potro because... When I see Sangha in the deep, deep parts of a draw, I'm like, oh, hey, Sangha's here, 
versus Del Potro. It's like, oh yeah, Del Potro's here. You know, it's very, very different. And I don't know exactly how to put my finger on that. But I think one part of it for me is that although Sangha has the ability to go big, it's like you said, the word sustained, you know, the big game, it's just not, he didn't go big enough consistently and make balls consistently while going a big to be a threat major after major after major so that's the thing we've talked about with all of these guys it's how are they able to beat the big four how would you be able to do it i think you know for the first guy Ferrer, when we were talking about his defining sequence it's that he couldn't constantly put the big guys under pressure when it's gael monfils said he same thing it's that it it's not that he la- you know for Ferrer, he lacked a weapon for monfils he lacked the consistency for burdich when he he could hit one of those guys off the court uh, but he couldn't hit three of them off the court in a row for delpo it's an injury thing I think for Joe Wilfred Sanga, it's it's probably similar to his fellow Frenchman, Guyon Monfils, and that, sure, maybe he can beat one of them. And, you know, at the Australian Open in 2008, he beat Murray first round and Nadal in the semifinals. At the Australian Open 2010, he beat Djokovic in the quarterfinals. Wimbledon 2010, Federer in the – or 2011, excuse me, Federer in the quarterfinals. Uh, and, you know, Wimbledon 2012, he didn't have to face any of those guys but ended up losing to Murray in a close four-set match. Yeah, it's just that it was – it was so hard for over five sets. It, you know, that's when the big four always distinguished themselves as the, the the cream of the crop. And because his game is so predicated on hitting explosive shots, hitting that rare winner, it's just really hard to do that at a high level. Only a Delpo and a, you know, a Tring Burdich really have that sort of firepower to hit those top four off the court. Yeah. And so that's the thing with Sangha. I just remember more than anything, and what I was trying to get at before, it's like, it's almost like this feeling where you start watching him and you're like, oh, no, he's going to miss, right? Yeah. Because he's just it's going like, oh, big. It's like, oh, you can do that a couple times, yeah. but you and can't then, do that for and the a full third match. ball, the third ball, you know, you miss this deep. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. he, and, and I get it. You're playing these guys. You're playing a Djokovic on a hard court, right? Of course you're going to be going huge. You have to. You have to. But that's the thing that's so great with those guys is, is they force you to do that. And so ultimately, there's only a select few, like you said, and uh, you know, a, a healthy Del Potro who can do it over and over and over. Like the weight of that shot is just so significant. Asanga, man, if you get your ball neutralized twice, I mean, he's going to go for a big third one and he might miss it. And so that's the one where I was just – anytime I would watch Sanga come close to breaking through, he, he reaches one of these steady guys like a Nadal, a Djokovic, and you're like – Oh no, he's gonna miss the fourth ball. He's just gonna miss. Yeah. So here's the thing: we talk about his upside. Why he had to be included included on this list? He did it at a Masters yeah. event in Canada. He beat Djokovic, Murray, and Federer all in the same tournament. And how many guys can say that? One, maybe two. Uh, and so that that's a huge deal. Uh, that speaks to when he's hot, he's as good as anyone on a tennis court. He made two finals as well at Masters events in Shanghai, where he beat Anderson and Nadal in 2015. At Par- in Paris in 2011, he got a withdraw from Djokovic. Beat Isner but lost to Federer one in six. Four Masters semifinals, fifteen Masters quarterfinals. I mean, he's beaten all of the big four guys. Now his records aren't great, but he's also beaten them all at Slams. Uh, Federer twice at the Slams, Nadal once at the Slams, Djokovic once, Murray once. Um, but overwhelmingly, those guys have just because it's so hard. You can beat one of them, but then you've got to beat another one, right? And so he hasn't been able to sustain that form. I think that's the clearest cut proof. So, do you think he left any slams on the tables? There any event where you thought oh this is one he could have won i don't know this is another guy who he maybe he gets super streaky i don't know if he goes i don't know if he goes to bed at night thinking he leaves one on the table though when you look at his career i don't i don't i don't think i see that mindset maybe obviously if it's me it's different right because if it's you you feel that close you're like i could have done it but from the outside perspective it's not someone who feels like they left one on the table I honestly feel that Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray and probably Rafa and definitely Fed, including this Wimbledon, they left more on the table probably than Joe Sanga. There are probably more finals that they're kicking themselves over than Joe Wilfred Sanga. And not that that's a bad thing. You know, that's what the great ones do is they get more upset about the losses than the wins. Um, But I just, I don't think Joe Wilfred Sanga ever showed me over two weeks that he was the best player on the ATP. No, no, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. All right. Well, then with that in mind, and uh, I guess it's the last question, window open or closed for Sangha? Yeah, it's got to be closed. Hate to say it. I agree. Closed as well. The only guy really on this list that we mentioned still open may be Delpo. But there are a lot of other players who obviously competed in Grand Slams over this decade who did not end up as champion but had great results along the way. We are going to be doing a best of the decades full pod on the lost generation. Of course, those guys being the Nishikoris, Rayonich's, Dimitrovs of the world who 
obviously have not won any slams. Um, but just because you have to consider that group of guys when talking about this topic, we're not going to do a deep dive on all of them. Otherwise, this podcast would be three hours. Uh, and again, we are going to be doing a specific podcast on just that generation. But I'm going to read you a list of names. I, I, and as I go through, you tell me, is th- is this guy's window still opened Ooh, or closed? Each okay? one. All right. Yeah, we'll just rapid fire. Kei Nishikori, open or closed? Uh, open if he can just outlast the big guys. That's really That's all it is. Six. It's it's pure longevity. That's all it is I, with Nishikori. I agree. So many quarterfinals under his belt. Eventually, there's got to be another final. I mean, yep. he made it. just lost to Chile. So I'm going to say slightly open. Milos Raonic, a couple finals to his – or, you know, that Wimbledon final we all remember. Open or closed? More open than Nishikori, I think. Wow. Grigor Dimitrov, open or closed? Open. Wow! I think it's open. okay. We saw we saw so, a good level from him. So here's the thing: is Opelka just going to be the better Rayonich on grass moving forward? And so, like, is Rayonich's little spot taken? That's a question. Mm, I mean, Rayonich a, is nasty. though. It's a fair question, but I, I, it's funny when you watch them. They're discernible differences. They're just very yeah, different course. players. You know, you, you see a couple big things like big third, big Milos forehand. But serves and volleys. Riley actually wants to be a grinder. Yeah, yeah. So they're very different. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think that's. I think it's open. Yeah, I would say Riley would say he's more Del Potra than Rayonich in terms of the big guy mold. But that's a conversation for another time. Um, yeah, uh, uh, I'm going to say closed on Ray- – uh, I'm going to say open Nishikori, closed Rayonich, Dimitrov. I don't even want to get into that. Too handsome for his own good. <laughs> I'm going to say closed. I hate to say it, but I think it's closed. David Goffin, open or closed? Uh, this is one where I'd love to say it, but I don't know if it's ever been open. I mean, look, he's 28, ah, but I don't know if... good take. I don't... I, I really don't. Um, and it, it's really hard to tell. Like, of course, you know, he, he did make that year-end finals, and we've seen him beat some of the top guys, but even if he outlasts some of these dudes in, in terms of just pure age, he's, what, 28? By then, I feel like the next-gen guys are going to be caught up. Um, so, so, very good take from you. I would say, much like we just did Opel Ranch, Medvedev has taken Gofan's chances of winning a slam because I, on a grand slam, on a hard court, it's like, oh, I could see Gofan being the only guy fit enough over mm-hmm. the two weeks due to injury. But it's like, oh, nope, now there's Medvedev. Yeah. Sorry, Gofan. Like, see, I don't that's think what that's I'm saying. It, the window, man, it's getting pushed by these next gen guys. Yeah. All right. Chilich. I know he has one, but window open or closed? I'm saying closed. I have to agree with you as well. It just seems something broke after that Wimbledon final. The tears, all the oh, the Australian was, Open, all these different things. That was a tough uh, scene. All right, Kevin Anderson, who snuck in, uh, you know, slam finals, open or closed? I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Conventional thinking would tell you closed, but a Wimbledon run with a guy like that, you know, you never know. He's one too with the injuries off and on. You don't know. I, mm, if it's open, it's slim. It's, it, the door is cracked. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think him and Milos Raonic are going to have to fit through the same door. And I think God Raonic has a better. See, that is that reasoning is why Wimbledon invented the fifth set. I would say they're like none of us want to see that. I would say I think Raonic had. I think his opening is larger than Anderson's though. What What about John Isner? Mm, more open. Uh, ooh, more open than Anderson. Ah, mm, that's a tough one actually. Him and, Anderson's, him and Anderson's back and forth. To me, I think Raonich is still more open than both of them. Okay. Uh, I probably go Raonich, Isner, Anderson as well just because we haven't seen him from health. I don't disagree. I think you laid out a pretty good case there. Uh, but, I mean, Anderson's the guy of that group. Well, I think Anderson's got two finals. Raonich has one, maybe two. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's pretty close. Isner's the only guy who hasn't made a final of that grouping. Yeah. And it just feels like we're destined for John Isner Wimbledon. Although maybe a that U.S. Was... Open. A U.S. Open run. Yeah. Come on, John. Too many Where good guys on the – yeah. All right. Well, last in this category, and they're more of the upper generation than this group, but in terms of left on the table, should Andy Murray or Stan Rodrinka have more or less than the three slams they have from this decade? I mean, of course, you're going to argue Murray should have more. Um, and and I, I do respect Stan for saying – like people will ask him, he's like, oh, do you deserve to be – in that big four and he's like no and he yeah. said that openly and i respect he has the right that. amount he has the right amount i respect that the one thing i will say for a vavrinka versus a murray is the game style piece and that's how he's sure. won those ones right he just come out and just hit people off the court well he did what we said saga and monfis and burdich can do right it's just he did it he did for it for three straight and i mean look we've seen stan this dude shows up you ever gone back through it's his finals records that guy has incredible records when it comes it's, down to the big time stage he's and like, like oh and i, I get to that. play novak perfect yeah and also 
2016 U.S. Open that he won, I feel like people forget he like actually probably should have lost. Wasn't that the one where he was on the brink against Marchenko of Ukraine? I think so. Like yeah. he very easily could have lost that and probably should have. And then he comes out and beats Djokovic, and you're like, what? Yeah. So it's just it's impressive. I, mm, given his game style, I would say Vavrinka maybe could have more. But given the presence, I would say Murray probably deserves to have more, at least in that category. But Vavrinka has the game that if he can show up and make a deep run, he, he can beat anybody. I think three feels right for Stan. He was that good three times. And you're like, yeah, he was the best player. He deserved all of them. There, there, were no, there was no luck, no ifs and or buts. Like, he was the guy. Andy, you know my thoughts, so we don't have to go through yeah, that. Okay, know. last one. Of the next-gen guys, and I'm including Dominic Team and Luca Pui, uh, you talk about finals appearance. Team and Medvedev are the guys who've done it. Semi-finalists Chung and Edmund in Australia 2018. Pass and Pui, Australia 2019. Bertini at the U.S. Open. Tiafo, Zverev, Hachinov, Kyrgios. Rublev, other guys with quarterfinal appearances. Um, you know, there's obviously other young guys like FAA, Yannick Sinner, Alex Dimenauer coming up the pipelines. Did any next-gen guy do you show the level that makes you think, man, maybe they could have taken a slam this decade? Yeah, I mean, if you're including team in this conversation, then yes. Um, team showed it. That's why I, I didn't. Mean, I mean, look, let's just think back. And it's not just Clay. I, th- I think we can agree that Clay is the best surface for him, at least right now. But Remember what was that? Was that twenty? Was that twenty eighteen U.S. Open? I think it was where he beat Nadal six zero in that first set. Yeah. I mean, that was just an insane Great match. level One of, of tennis. One of my favorite matches ever. It was like just an absurd Dude, level of tennis. I, and that so, Rafa Nadal won a U.S. Open. Sorry to cut you off. That he won a U.S. Open after Hachinov and Dominic Team literally broke him, and they were like, "We're go- we're we're trying to kill you, Rafa." Yes, and like he is now a Grand Slam champion again on this surface. Yeah, Ridiculous. Wild. It is wild, but. Um, yeah, I mean, team has shown that level. He deserves to be in that conversation. I think after this year, maybe it's just the recency effect, but Medvedev, I mean, look, he's shown that he can beat the guys. And of course, I would just, argue he was probably the one who came closest. We're high, I mean, we're, by sets, he did. We're high on him because it's very recent, right? We just yeah. saw it happen. Um, maybe you make the case of he's benefiting because it's as the big guys are coming out. But let's be clear, those top guys are still displaying a ridiculously high level. So it's still impressive, right? So I think team... I think Medvedev, Zverev is the last one that you could maybe throw in there, and I think this. Not yet. Okay. I I never thought I I was never going through one and thinking, yes, Tsitsipas could win this. There were a couple times where if you could see Zverev and you're like, yeah, he could do this. Now, of course, we've talked about Zverev in the majors millions of times. We don't need to belabor that. Um, Next gen will get its own part, especially especially if we're going to your you know sustained excellence. Zverev is one who deserves to be in the conversation. Given that, Um, just unfortunate with his runs haven't been as deep as people expected, especially not being able to defend his you know number three in the world seating for a a better part of the what last couple years now. So. I think those three guys, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Pass, maybe. I think FAA, mm. Sinner, uh, those are two guys you're just – who's I, they haven't shown a Grand Slam winning level, but those are two guys you're like, oh, I could see how it could happen someday. I mean, yeah, they're maybe just like, someday, I, but not this yeah, yeah, exactly. not The now. bits and pieces. I also think – Denis Shapovalov over these past few weeks, I know he doesn't qualify because he hasn't shown that he could win a Grand Slam, but – I mean, he showed that, man, I could see him getting hot for like two weeks in 2025 and just like winning a U.S. Open. I think he will win a U.S. Open. Yeah, I like think that, he will win a U.S. I'm fine with saying that. Just slap his way to win. a title. I think he'll win a U.S. Open. It's Delpo-esque. He's just mm-hmm. like, I'm going big down the line. Good luck. Yeah, and he's so athletic. And, of course, U.S. Open, we see the crazy things happen. He love, He's going to love the primetime matches at night. It, I think it's going to happen. I think he'll and win a U.S. Open. Of course, we're now slobbing over him after, you know, trashing him for the past two-thirds of the year but yeah, yeah. that's on you not me but yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's fair it usually is but with that in mind any final thoughts before we wrap this bad boy up uh just that i feel bad for del potro and that i hope he brings it and gets in and opens that window once again because an informed del potro is good for everybody it's good for the sport and that's what i want to see so ended on a hopeful note we spend a lot of time tearing people down and criticizing but Gotta love that well, uh, The hopeful note I would end on is it feels like, knock on wood, minus the fact that I think Djokovic is going to get at least five more. I'm sure Rafa's got one more in the tank, but it feels like these guys are closer and closer to getting their first slam, all the guys who haven't. So we are itching towards that moment where eventually the dam will break. Like, it, it's going to happen. Once one wins them, you get a feeling that a bunch are going to run off their first titles in a row as well. So that's going to be really fun. But with that in mind, got to give a shout out to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff. Westoff, that you're able to produce 
produce this video content. It shows hundreds of thousands of dollars you know you're worth. And we want to thank every all of you listeners who took the time to watch this stream, all of you listeners who are following right now on the podcast form as well. If you've liked this pod, please like, rate, subscribe, review. Leave us a little five-star rating as well. Leave us a comment on your thoughts. Reach out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, what your thoughts? Who are, Do you think any of these guys deserve slams? Do you think none of them really showed a high enough level in that, you know, the results bearing out are, as they did seems kind of right? We want to know your thoughts as well, so let us know. And I keep saying this on all the podcasts, but I'll stop asking for ratings when I know that the listening downloads number matches up with the ratings number, and it doesn't. And so last time we were saying, you know, it's 15 seconds, right? The different things you can do in 15 seconds. I made a little list of the different things you can do in 15 seconds, uh, but I'll save them for today's mini break because, uh, Jamie, I know you got to go as well. So uh, last shout-out I got to give, as always, to the man himself, Andy Murray, because how am I not going to give him a shout-out at the end of any of these podcasts? But for my wonderful co-host, James Foster McDonald, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, and from our entire teams at both the Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell our listeners? We tell them, A, it's Sir Andy Murray. That's disrespectful. And B, that's a break. It's not a break. Hey, great shot. Oh, Westoff, (laughs) leave it in the podcast one as well. And we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. 